Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. In 2006, Tarana Burke had this phrase, hashtag me too. It's a way to help women to be able to get a voice out when they've gone through or they've experienced any sort of sexual violence. And you fast forward 14 years, this is now a top phrase, and it's ignited a movement in our culture where top politicians, top actors, top athletes, and then all the way down to the common man are being exposed, saying it's not okay. It's not okay. Then something happened as well. There's this silence is not spiritual movement that came out outside of this. And it was started by a group of evangelical women that said, you know, inside of the church confines, there are so many women right now. Because of their experiences and because how they feel inside the church, I can't tell the truth. I I really, I can't say what's going on inside of my home. Because, Because I love Jesus, I've got to just hide all of this And when I walk into the church, I have to pretend everything is okay. So even though for six days a week, my life is hell, when I walk into on Sunday, we're going to paint a smile on our face as a family, pretend everything's okay. And this silence is not spiritual movement started a whole movement inside of churches where people were being exposed. Kate Shelnut, in an article, Women Speak Up in in the Silence is Not Spiritual campaign, says this, this movement in history is ours to steward. We have an opportunity to partner with God in his redemptive work in our communities and in our churches, pushing back against cultural attitudes of exploitation. Boy, am I ignorant. I am completely ignorant. It wasn't until my female friends started telling me stories, and I started to hear what it was like growing up as a female. Some of those things deemed well, it's not that big of a deal. Cat calls, whistles, comments, looks, all these things forever just been kind of shoved to the side, and I've never had that done. At the same time, my friends start telling me of how those things progress into other things and how inappropriate touching, inappropriate hands, inappropriate, inappropriate, I don't want this, stop. But they don't have a voice to say anything. One of the stories that blew my mind was my good friend. And I I got into the running world. And the running world is a very unique atmosphere where male and female, we're all miserable together all the time. And my one friend who inspired me into running and actually was my catalyst of getting into this started telling me stories. She's like, you have no idea what it's like to be a female runner. You have no idea the honks, the looks, the comments. She told me, that every time she goes out, she has to plan her course and let her husband know which way she's going in case she doesn't return. She told me every time she goes out, she must go with a friend. She can't go alone in case something happens. She tells me that when she goes out, she's supposed to be carrying pepper spray or some way to defend herself from an attacker. She told me the story. As as she's on a run, her and her friend, a van pulls up, opens the door, and starts inviting these women into his van. 
And as they ran faster to try to get away, this van sped along with them, with these men inside of this car, urging these middle-aged women into this van. This isn't just for the young and for the teenagers. These are middle-aged women who are trying to be called into this van, and they got to a safe place. I had no idea. I lace up my shoes in the morning. I put on my shorts. I put on my glasses and my hat, and I go for my run. The only thing I'm concerned about is some inattentive driver texting while driving. And I, I, I run into traffic, looking into the eyes of drivers to make sure that that person's paying attention. That's my biggest fear. I have no other fears when I run. I had no idea. And story upon story upon story, I start to find out that our culture has allowed too much to happen for too long to these beautiful people we call sisters. And it breaks my heart. I'm ignorant. And then I start to really think about this. And I start to think, you know, when I look at my experiences as a man, and I look at my worldview, and I look at my Western culture, I realize I look at the Bible the same way as a Western culture male. And I start to think about my experiences in, in lieu of that, and I'm like, I am ignorant. And that's where we're going to open up and study our scriptures today. We're going to be in 2 Samuel verses 11, or chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, page 221 in the Bibles that are underneath the seats. If you want to open up your uh, Bible apps, I'm going to be reading this today. It's too long for slides. So if you do have Bible app to get into that or like to use one of our Bibles, but I'll be reading it to you as well. And this is the story of King David and Bathsheba. If you've been inside of the church world for a while, you've, you may have heard this story. You may have heard the story of King David and Bathsheba. But I'm going to challenge us to look at this from a new perspective. Let's look at this not from Western culture male reading. Let's look at this from a different perspective. Pull your spa- yourself back from the story and just listen to what's happening. Again, 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 through 14. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites, they besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone out to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David said this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the palace with all the master servants and did not go to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why don't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. 
How could, I go to, how could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as I live, I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem and that day and the next, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. If you've ever heard this passage before, this is an intense passage. And there's a lot of things going on. So let me give you some background. King David is lauded as one of the greatest kings, one of the greatest military minds of all time. If you know biblical stories, if you've heard the story of David and Goliath, this is the same guy. He was a shepherd boy. When all of Israel was afraid, he takes a stone and a sling and he kills this major giant. He is, in history, known as one of the greatest kings of all time. But now we catch our king in a quite interesting situation. Our situation here is that we are looking at this from a perspective of King David using his power to manipulate and then have somebody killed. That in this one passage, this great king used the power that's given to him by God to take a woman, bring her to his place, then send her off pregnant, try to trick the husband to go into sleep with his wife so that he could be off the hook for any pregnancy, but it doesn't work, so he sends this guy to the front line to be killed. I've heard this message so many times. And let me tell you the message I've heard. King David goes up on his rooftop. Bathsheba's out there tempting the king. She's out there bathing seductively like a temptress out there. She's bathing. Why is she out bathing out in the courtyard? It's such a normal thing, right? So she's out there, and King David's like, oh, I should not look. Oh, but I must. And poor King David, his, his will fell apart. And then he goes to her, and he brings him to say, sister, please, please, you should put clothes on. Now, that's, this is my paraphrase. I've never heard that message. But you get now really what I'm saying? In somehow, some way, we've twisted this message that, that King David is the victim here. Like somehow, some way, that he's caused the problems. But let's look at what's going on. King David sends his army out. They are winning all the time. They are thriving. They are beating nation after nation, battle after battle. He's a powerful warrior, but he decides to stay back. He stays back. So he goes up on his rooftop of his palace. Common practice to go up to look upon the kingdom. He goes up there. He's walking along up above high, and he sees a woman bathing. Now, remember, this is not United States of America 2020. They didn't have indoor plumbing. And the word bathing, actually, in the Hebrew words, can mean many different things. Some have interpreted it as washing or cleansing herself. So this could mean that she is washing her hands. She's washing her feet. We don't know. But either way, if she was bathing in totality, it would have been in a courtyard that was blocked off by everything, and so it would have been very private because they did not have indoor plumbing. So this woman, no matter what she is doing, has no intention to be out in society flaunting herself. She's cleaning herself, whatever it is. And then we've got David being a peeping Tom. Now, he's up on this palace, and so he can creep 
into all these different places. In this high perch of area, he sees this woman. He sees her. He's like, oh, man, I shouldn't be looking at that. He goes his other way. He's got wives. He's got more than one wife. This dude's got everything in the world. But he sees this woman. He's like, she's beautiful. So he gets his servants. He says to her, okay, who is she? He's like, ah, you know her. You know her. That's your main guy, Uriah. That's his wife. He's like, oh, okay. That's, I know him. Like, we're friends. I know this guy. Cool, cool. But she's really good looking. Uh, bring her to me. So he sends not one servant, but multiple servants. Now, to be clear in this culture, you don't deny a king. You do not say no to a king unless you'll be killed. Okay? You don't say no to a king. Now, was she forcibly brought up? We don't know. Did they drag her there? We don't know. We don't know what's happening. They don't know. He just says, the king wants to see you. She's like, okay. So she goes over to the king. And as we see in the story, she comes to the king. And as he gets with her, we see he sleeps with her. The author doesn't tell us what's going on, but you have to look at the narrative of story. The narrative of story as the author's writing is to give you an idea of what could be happening and what's not being said. And what's not being said is that Bathsheba willingly went and gave herself to the king with great joy and said, it doesn't matter that I'm married to Uriah. I still want to be with you. Doesn't say that. It says the king was up and you start to see the king in this negative narrative who sends servants to bring this woman to him, and she, has, she can't deny him. She's forced upon. She's raped. Now, how we determine that and how we say that is looking at the narrative within the story, and the Hebrew words as they start to pull together is painting David in this place of he's self-destructing. And as he's on this roof, when he could have said no, when he finds out it's Uriah's wife, he could have said no. When he brings her to her, her to him, he could have said no. He didn't. One after another after another. But then we keep hearing this story like, maybe it's her fault. What, maybe she shouldn't have been bathing there. She shouldn't have been there. She shouldn't have been in that situation. Think of it in the same way as this. Would we blame, and we're seeing more and more of this happening, right? Cameras being hidden in women's changing rooms. It happened right here in Slinger at St. Vincent de Paul last year. It is, that terrifies me. It terrifies me to think that at some place, at some time, my wife or my daughter could walk into a place to try to change clothes, to try on something to see if it fits, and there's a camera recording. Is that, is it the person who's in there changing, trying on these clothes, is it her fault, or is it the person who placed the camera? And these cameras that's going on now, and everyone's because cameras are so small, we're starting to find out they're in hotels. We're finding out they're in changing rooms. We're finding out that these people are going around doing terrible things with technology. And I have a wife, and I have a daughter, and it brings up a rage in me. So how can we blame the victim of someone who's inside of a changing room the same way as a woman who's out in a courtyard washing up? being discreet, washing and cleansing herself. And they take note of the fact that she's cleansing herself from her cycle. Now, I always thought that that's a strange note to make note inside if you're like, but there's a lot of 
aspects to that within the culture. Culturally, that's part of ritual cleaning. At that time, they would cleanse themselves for ritual purities, religious purities. At the same time, it's telling you something very clear. She is able to become pregnant. She's at the place in which she's fertile to become pregnant. And so do we put all these things together to say, you know, Bathsheba, you really are the one to blame here. Or do we look at it from a different perspective to say, wait, there's a huge injustice that's done here. There's something terrible that happened. In Sarah Bowler's work, Bathsheba, Vixen or Victim, she says it really well. Particularly during this time and cultural context, a woman summoned by the king was not truly able to refuse. Once we understand the power dynamics at play, it's clear that Bathsheba could not have been a willing participant. So he sends for her. He brings her. So then he finds out she's pregnant. And then he says, I'm going to do the unthinkable. I'm going to try to get her husband tricked into sleeping with his wife, so I'm off the hook. So this guy is so loyal to his troops, to his army, to his king, and to his God. He's like, my people are out in the field. There's no way I can have any enjoyment. I can't have comfort. I'm going to sleep on a mat at the palace. So it doesn't work. He doesn't go home. He's like, I'm not worthy to go home. So then, I mean, what a loyal dude. So then we, we back this up. He's like, all right, why don't you come to the palace? And then David gets him drunk. He starts giving all his wine, like, oh, so maybe his inhibitions are a little softened up. So this guy, they're, they're in the palace, they're eating, they're drinking. He's a little tipsy, and he's like, why don't you go home to your wife? He's like, I can do no such thing. I will not disgrace the Lord. I will not disgrace my army. I will not disgrace the king. And so he sleeps on a mat. And then the third time, David says, all right, that's cool. Send him up in the line, everybody go back, he gets killed. And so he has Uriah killed. Unbelievable. Andy Crouch offers us a helpful tool in thinking about this. Um, he has a two-by-two -two grid of authority that helps us be able to see and how much ability you have to exert change in the world and how much authority versus vulnerability. We see that when there is high authority with high vulnerability, people flourish. When there's low authority with high vulnerability, people suffer. When we see that there's low vulnerability with low authority, people withdraw. And when there's high authority with low vulnerability, people exploit. The dynamics are play, at play are clear here. David is someone with very little vulnerability. He's the king with very, very high authority. So he exploits that, and he uses it to manipulate and get what he wants. Bathsheba is ex extremely vulnerable, and she has no authority so therefore, she suffers. But how does our view of Bathsheba even matter? Like, this is a story from a while ago, and we can put it in the context of, we don't have kings and those situations happening. She, it was a different time context, perhaps. Perhaps this is something, we know there's injustice in our society now, but perhaps this is just something that, that is different from our world. When power is given, Power is given to you to serve, not to abuse. I want to say this again because this is the context of this passage. If you can drive this deep into your heart, power is given to serve, not abuse. 
At no time in the story of God has he entrusted leaders, authorities, people, each of you, authority, so that you use that authority to abuse others. There are parents who use their authority to abuse their, their children. There are pastors who use their authority to abuse not only other people, but the very word of God. There are women who use their authority to abuse. There are youth that use their authority to abuse. It does not matter what phase of life you're in or where you are, when you have authority over or around anybody, if you use that authority, it is to serve, never to abuse. And here we see King David. He could have served, but he abused. The story of David goes downhill from there. You keep reading on. It says in 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And then from there, everything goes downhill. God turns away from him. His children turn against each other. His, his daughter is raped by her, by his half, her half-brother. So there's incest. His own children are dying. His old children come up to usurp him. From that time forward and to the time that David dies, his story completely takes a turn because when authority is given, much is expected. No matter what level of authority that you have, your authority given by God is used to serve, never to abuse. It is so key to understand and know that because we are accountable for that. We're accountable for everything we say and everything we do. As a pastor and teacher, that scares me to death. But then again, the word of God says, don't all of you presume to be teachers because you're held to a higher standard, a higher accord. You know why that is? Because when authority is given, you have to handle this well to serve and not to abuse. But yet, our King David, a hero in so many eyes, uses power and his position to victimize Bathsheba. David was given the power to serve, but he used it to abuse. Now take this in contrast with Jesus. Look at our Jesus. He comes into the picture, he comes into a culture that women are marginalized. At the context of Jesus' day, women weren't given the rights of men. Women weren't allowed to be in the courtyards of worship with men. In fact, it's a, during his, his time, is really funny, the, the Pharisees saw women as such a distraction to their holy lives and as seductresses and, and want them to tempt them that they wouldn't look, they would keep their heads down and they would bang into walls. They call them the bruised and bloody because they didn't want to see because it's all their fault. It was all women's fault. Their job was not to do these things. That was for the job of men. Women go to the side and then Jesus says something beautiful. He says, I actually have something else for you. Jesus changed everything. He walked into a culture where women were not respected, honored, equal. And he says this in Mark 5.25, he breaks all religious rules by healing a hemorrhaging woman. This woman has this nonstop bleeding that's going on. And as a rabbi, you cannot touch that person. You can't be around that person. And she comes up and she's like, if I can just touch the cloak of this rabbi, I will be healed. And he he heals her. He knows exactly what she did. 
And she touches and she's healed. And then he says this. He doesn't say, who are you to touch me? He calls her daughter. Daughter. Then we see in Matthew 19, 16 to 24, he rebukes all the greed of the wealthy and he elevates the gift, a small gift of this widow. A widow has no way of making a living. That's why in the scriptures it says, take care of the orphans and the widows. In their culture, they're completely outside. Consider them the homeless of our culture. And this woman comes and has nothing and she gives and he lifts her to the highest accord and says she's given more than everyone else has given. Mark 12, 41 to 44, as opposed to Bathsheba's story of abuse by David, Jesus breaks all cultural norms and starts sitting and talking to the most hated enemy of the Israelite people, a Samaritan. And they sit down. She starts talking with him in public. Can you imagine this? Because they didn't do that. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. And he's like, girl, I have water that gives you eternal life. Stop sinning. I have a life for you. And so he breaks that in front of everybody. It doesn't stop there. Over and over again, Jesus helped the hurting, the sick, the outcast, everyone who's marginalized. He looked at our cultural norms, things within their culture, and he's like, I don't come here for this. I come here for humanity to change the world. Jesus went places no religious people go. He hung with people no one to hang out with. And he did what was unthinkable in the culture of the Jewish people. He hung out and talked women. He taught women. He valued women. He loved women. And then as, the, as he leaves and the church expands, we see women as a key part of the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world. And we sit here today because Jesus broke the norm. He changed everything. What he did changed everything. So that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. We have to keep Jesus as our hero. I like King David a lot. He is an amazing man of faith. And God calls him a man after his own heart. But once we get to the second Samuel verse, I'm like, wow, you're a human like everybody else. Makes it feel kind of, kind of sick inside to know our heroes always have dark sides. But whoever your hero is outside of Jesus Christ himself, they do have a dark side. But here we see this beautiful example in our King Jesus. He comes and changes everything. So we're going to do the same thing. We're not going to be silent. This is one of the least talked about topics in church, is what is happening in our culture to women. And we're going to make a voice about it. We are going to talk about it. We're not going to be silent. So as I close today, I want to say something clear. If you have ever been abused... If you are being abused, if you've gone through something from your past, your present, don't stay silent. We are here. We don't have all the answers, but we know how to get you those answers. It is not a place where you have to come and put a covering around and pretend and smile everything's okay. Jesus came to change everything. And I'm saying to you, friends, right now, Jesus is our king. He used all of his power to serve, not to abuse. I know that there's pain in this room. I know that there is. 
And so I'm asking you to not leave here today without talking to somebody. I'm here, but you know what? I understand I'm a guy. I get that. I might not be the first safest place to talk to. Talk to somebody. Talk to a team leader. Talk to somebody and start the conversation of saying silence is not spiritual. Jesus Christ has changed the entire world. He loves men and he loves women. He loves us and calls us sons and daughters because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the king I serve. That's the king I love. The king that changed and flipped the script on everything, I give my life to him. And so we'll do the same thing. And I understand also abuse happens to our brothers in here. So I'm not ignorant to that. Abuse happens on the side of brothers. Brothers, I'm saying to you, don't walk out there without saying something. Talk to somebody. We want to get you connected. We want to get the conversation going because if you don't know our core values, I'm going to tell you one of them right now. Authentic community, it's okay to not be okay. We just don't put that on a piece of paper. We believe it. So let us be like our king, our King Jesus, who used his power, authority, everything that he has as God of the universe. He used it to serve, not abuse. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering. For service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world, visit us at mosaicwi.com.